Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 221. Today's big Bible question, can meditation on God's Word bring joy and banish darkness? So, hello, friends. Happy Tuesday to you. Super long show yesterday. Sorry about that. So, let's calm it down a bit for today. I try to keep things under 30 minutes these days, but honestly, sometimes it just gets away from me. Well, today's passages include Judges 18, Jeremiah 32, Psalms chapter 1 and 2, and Acts 22. And our focus passage today is in the beautiful first psalm. And yes, we are back in the psalms. With the Robert Murray McShane Bible reading plan we are going through on this podcast and on the church I pastor at Valley Baptist Church in Salinas, we will read all of the Old Testament except the Psalms once. We will read all 150 of the Psalms and the New Testament twice. So today begins our rereading of the Psalms. Ever since our first read-through, I have personally adopted a new habit of reading a Psalm in the morning before I read any news or whatever. Uh, I really try to make it a habit before I read any any text conversation, any alerts or anything like that. Sometimes, you know, an alert will pop up and you accidentally read it. But it's my goal to read the Word of God first, to cram that into my head first and foremost before anything else. And honestly, it's been a blessing to do so. So much of the news we've been reading these days is negative. Uh, so beginning the day at the very start in the Word has honestly been fruitful for my soul and my thought patterns. Today we ask the question, can meditation on God's word bring joy and drive away darkness? And I actually believe the answer to that question is absolutely it can. So let's read our two Psalms passages and then talk about the power of meditating on the word of God. Psalm chapter 1 verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. How happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked or stand in the pathway with sinners? or sit in the company of mockers. Instead, his delight is in the Lord's instruction, and he meditates on it day and night. He is like a tree planted beside flowing streams that bears its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. The wicked are not like this. Instead, they are like the shaft that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand up in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to ruin. Psalm chapter 2, verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and his anointed one. Let's tear off their chains and throw their ropes off of us. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord ridicules them, then he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will declare the Lord's decree. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with an iron scepter. You will shatter them like pottery. So now, kings, be wise. Receive instruction, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with reverential awe and rejoice with trembling. Pay homage to the Son, or he will be angry, and you will perish in your rebellion, for his anger may ignite at any moment. All who take refuge in him are happy. So meditation on God's word, I believe, is a key weapon given to us by the Lord to combat 
unhealthy and destructive thought patterns with the supernatural word of God. Recall that, as we've talked about meditation a little bit before, that the difference between biblical meditation and Eastern forms of meditation is quite significant. The goal of biblical meditation is to fill one's mind and thoughts and emotions with the powerful truth of God's Word. But the goal of Eastern meditation is more often to, you know, sort of empty your mind uh, and let, I don't know, other things flow into it, I guess. A key verse that kind of guides us in the difference between Eastern meditation and biblical meditation is Philippians 4.8, which says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Consider Hebrews 4.12, for it says, The word of God is living and active or effective and sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is able to judge the ideas and thoughts of the heart. So it's almost as if this passage, which was written almost 2,000 years ago, is screaming, the word of God is a fantastic weapon against depression and every unhealthy thought, feeling, or anxiety. Right now, as the pandemic rages towards its, I don't know, fifth month in the United States of America, and beyond that, there's so many people around the world that are de- struggling with depression and anxiety and fear and worry and unrest and all sorts of things, all of the relatives of those thoughts, probably now more so than any time in the past 50 years worldwide. And look, depression can be serious, and I believe it can be treated medically, but I want you to, t- to tell you that the Word of God is living and effective, and it is a powerful weapon against overwhelming thoughts of fear, depression, despair, anxiety, and whatever. When you are fighting a powerful wave of those negative emotions, number one, don't feel alone, because we all fight it, just most people don't talk about it, but number two... A sometimes a mere small dose of God's word will not have the same impact against those kind of negative thoughts and anxiety and overwhelming fear and depression as a much larger dose will have. And the best way I know of to receive the word to the deepest level of our spirits is to meditate on it. So let's consider all of the promises. Well, not all. Let's consider a few of the promises of Psalm 119 relative to God's word. So verse 11 says, I have treasured your word in my heart so that I may not sin against you. Verse 25, my life is down in the dust. Give me life through your word. Verse 28, I am weary from grief. Strengthen me with your word. Verse 49, remember your word to your servant. You have given me hope through it. Verse 103, how sweet is your word to my taste, sweeter than honey in my mouth. Verse 105, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my fat path. Verse 107, I am severely afflicted. Lord, give me life through your word. Verse 111, I have your decrees as a heritage forever. Indeed, they are the joy of my heart. Verse 114, you are my shelter and my shield. I put my hope in your word. Verse 130, the revelation of your words brings light and gives understanding to the inexperience. Verse 147, I rise before dawn and cry out for help. I put my hope in your word. 
So life comes from the supernatural word of God. Hope comes from the supernatural word of God. Light comes from the supernatural word of God. Strength comes from the supernatural word of God. Healing comes from the supernatural word of God. Sweetness and joy comes from the supernatural word of God. How is that possible? Because the word of God is living. It's God-breathed. It's out of his mouth. It's active. It's powerful. It's sharp. So how can we partake rightly of this divine source to help us wrestle with depression and other negative thoughts and uh, things that bind us and including temptation? How can we partake of the word of God in a way to help us overcome? Simply by reading our Bibles? Well, that helps, certainly. But I actually think there's a better way. Almost like uh, hacking our brains by meditating on the Word of God. So the passage we just read, Psalm 1-1, How happy is the man who does not follow the advice of the wicked or take the path of sinners or join a group of mockers. Instead, his delight or his joy is in the Lord's instruction and he meditates on it day and night. Well, what's the result of that meditation? Well, he's happy. He's joyful. He's taking delight. So the word of God is a key to walking in joy. When we fill our minds with the word of God, any unhealthy thoughts, especially those brought on by depression, fear, anxiety, etc., will be much less likely to take deep roots in our thinking and feelings and help. God-honoring thoughts, on the other hand, will be much more likely to grow and prosper in the field of our mind. So think of meditation on the Word of God, if this isn't too crude, as sort of a godly supernatural weed and feed. It helps to suppress and uproot bad and harmful thoughts and causes good and helpful and godly thoughts to thrive and grow. So what we've talked about meditation before. What does the word actually mean? Well, it means to moan or growl or utter or speak. So meditating on God's word is technically akin to moaning it or muttering it or musing over it in your mind, turning it over and over again like a living and active thing. It's like a mental chewing on the word. In meditation, the word of God goes from a shallow place on the top levels of our understanding Uh, barely on the surface of the soil of our hearts to a much deeper place where it's going to take root and grow and bear a lot of fruit. Now, I uh, used to teach college uh, classes for several years. I'm not teaching since I've been in California, maybe one day again, but I taught uh, college New Testament, theology, Old Testament, and some other classes. And when I would teach about meditation, I would bring a cup of, uh, a clear cup of water to the class And I would bring tea, and I would use the tea as an analogy. One dip of the tea bag into the water does not make tea. And one reading of the Word of God, quick and over quickly, does not make for deep penetration into us. So hearing the Word once is like one dip of the tea bag into the water. You're not even going to hardly see anything, maybe the faintest hint of brown, Well, reading the Word of God is like maybe two dips. Memorization of the Word of God is like a few more dips of the tea bag into our crystal clear water. Meditation, though, when we go beyond reading, we go beyond hearing, we go beyond even memorization, and we're just focused on it, chewing on it over and over and over again, it's a long dunk in the Word of God. 
in the same spot. And so, by the way, I, 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 we have talked about meditation before. And if you want to learn how to meditate, that was a previous episode where I kind of gave a practical guide to meditation. It wasn't something I wrote myself, but I found it and been using it for years. You can come to our website, BibleReadingPodcast.com, and just in the search bar there, search for meditation. We've talked about it several times. That might help you. But So basically, the way to do meditation is it's pretty simple. You read the passage once through or a couple of times through. Say it out loud so you can hear it to yourself. So read it, step one. Step two, say it. Step three, write it down. So like you're involving your muscles in different parts of your brain. When you read something, it's one part of your brain. When you say it out loud and hear it, it's a different part of your brain. When you write it down, a different part of your brain. Sing it, that's step four. Singing is an entirely different part of your brain. It, you don't even have to make up a great tune for it, like you're some sort of Bach or Beethoven uh, composer. Just sing whatever is in your heart. Sing it, and then finally pray it. So read it, say it, write it, sing it, pray it. That's how you meditate on the Word of God. Just choose a small passage at first, maybe a verse or a truth in a verse, even half a verse. Read it, write it, say it, sing it, pray it. And my brothers and sisters, that is going to drive the Word of God deep into your heart, and it is going to cause good and godly things to thrive in your spirit, and it is going to cause the uprooting of ungodly things and destructive thought patterns. So let me close with a beautiful word of encouragement from Charles Spurgeon on the benefits of walking for exercise. It's a good thing to do. And the much greater benefit of meditating on the word of God. Spurgeon writes, Those who would be in health do not sit still in their houses to breathe the air that may come to them, but they walk out and seek out rural and elevated spots that they may inhale the invigorating breezes, and thus those godly souls who would be in a vigorous spiritual state do not merely think upon such holy doctrines as may come into their minds in the ordinary course of thought, but they give time to meditation They walk abroad in the fields of truth and endeavor to climb the heights of the gospel promises. It is said that Enoch walked with God. Here is not an idle, but an active communion. The road to bodily health is said to be a footpath, and the way to spiritual health is to exercise oneself in holy contemplation. Amen to that, brothers and sisters. May we deeply meditate on the word of God, and may it bear much fruit in our lives. Judges chapter 18, verse 1, and brief caveat before we read this passage, do remember in Judges that we're not being presented with great examples of the people of God. We are being presented over and over and over again in Judges of examples of people who are doing what they want and not following the word of God. So the priest we're reading about today and the one who hired him, Micah, and the one who kidnaps him and, uh, well, doesn't kidnap him, but steals him from Micah, All of these people are doing wrong, and that's part of the point of Judges, that people were doing what was right in their own eyes, but not doing what God told them to do. So don't think any of this is being lionized. All of this is an example for us of godless living. Judges 18, verse 1. In those days there was no king in Israel, and the Danite tribe was looking for territory to occupy. Up to that time, no territory had been captured by them among the tribes of Israel. So the Danites sent out five brave men from all their clans, from Zorah and Eshtaol, to scout out the land and explore it. 
They told them, go and explore the land. They came to the hill country of Ephraim as far as the home of Micah and spent the night there. While they were near Micah's home, they recognized the accent of the young Levite there, so they went over to him and asked, Who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? What is keeping you here? And he told them, This is what Micah has done for me. He's hired me and I became his priest. Then they said to him, Please inquire of God for us to determine if we will have a successful journey. The priest told them, Go in peace. The Lord is watching over the journey you are going on. So the five men left and came to Laish. They saw that the people who were living there were living securely in the same way as the Sidonians, quiet and unsuspecting. There was nothing lacking in the land and no oppressive ruler. They were far from the Sidonians, having no alliance with anyone. When the men went back to their relatives of Zorah and Eshtaol, their relatives asked them, What did you find out? And they answered, Come on, let's attack them, for we have seen the land and it is very good. Why wait? Don't hesitate to go and invade and take possession of the land. When you get there, you will come to an unsuspecting people in a spacious land, for God has handed it over to you. It is a place where nothing on earth is lacking. Six hundred Danites departed from Zorah and Eshtual, armed with weapons of war. They went up and camped at Kiriath-Jerim in Judah. This is why that place is still called the Camp of Dan today. It is west of Kiriath-Jerim. From there they traveled to the hill country of Ephraim and arrived at Micah's house. The five men who had gone to scout out the land of Laish told their brothers, Did you know that there are an ephod, household gods, and a carved image, and a silver idol in these houses? Now think about what you should do. So they detoured there and went to the house of the young Levite at the home of Micah and greeted him. The six hundred Danite men were standing by the entrance of the city gate, armed with their weapons of war. Then the five men who had gone to scout out the land went in and took the carved image, the ephod, the household idols, and the silver idol, while the priest was standing by the entrance of the city gate with the six hundred men armed with weapons of war. When they entered Micah's house and took the carved image, the ephod, the household idols, and the silver idol, the priest said to them, What are you doing? They told him, Be quiet. Keep your mouth shut. Come with us and be a father and a priest to us. Is it better for you to be a priest for the house of one person or for you to be a priest for a tribe and family in Israel? So the priest was pleased and took the ephod, household idols, carved image, and went with the people. They prepared to leave, putting their dependents, livestock, and possessions in front of them. After they were some distance from Micah's house, the men who were in the houses near it were mustered and caught up with the Danites. They called to the Danites, who turned to face them and said to Micah, What's the matter with you that you mustered the men? And he said, You took the gods I'd made and the priest and went away. What do I have left? How can you say to me, What's the matter with you? The Danites said to him, Don't raise your voices against us, or angry men will attack you, and you and your family will lose your lives. The Danites went on their way, and Micah turned to go home, because he saw that they were stronger than he was. After they had taken the gods Micah had made and the priests that belonged to them, they went to Laish to a quiet and unsuspecting people. They killed them with their swords and burned the city. There was no one to rescue them because it was far from Sidon, and they had no alliance with anyone. It was in a valley that belonged to Beth Rehob. They rebuilt the city and lived in it. They named the city Dan after the name of their ancestor Dan, who was born to Israel. The city was formerly named Laish. The Nanites set up the carved image for themselves. Jonathan, son of Gershom, son of Moses, and his sons were priests for the Danite tribe until the time of the exile from the land. 
So they set up for themselves Micah's carved image that he had made, and it was there as long as the house of God was in Shiloh. Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 1. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the tenth year of King Zedekiah of Judah, who was the eighth, which was the eighteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar. At that time, the army of the king of Babylon was besieging Jerusalem, and the prophet Jeremiah was imprisoned in the guards' courtyard in the palace of the king of Judah. King Zedekiah of Judah had imprisoned him, saying, Why are you prophesying as you do? You say, This is what the Lord says. Look, I am about to hand this city over to Babylon's king, and he will capture it. King Zedekiah of Judah will not escape from the Chaldeans. Indeed, he will certainly be handed over to Babylon's king. They will speak face to face and meet eye to eye. He will take Zedekiah to Babylon, where he will stay until I attend to him. This is the Lord's declaration, for you will fight the Chaldeans, but you will not succeed. Jeremiah replied, The word of the Lord came to me. Watch, Hanamel, the son of your uncle Shalom, is coming to you to say, Buy my field in Anathoth for yourself, for you own the right of redemption to buy it. Then, as the Lord said, my cousin Hanamel came to the guard's courtyard and urged me, Please buy my field in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, for you own the right of inheritance and redemption. Buy it for yourself. Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. So I bought the field in Anathoth from my cousin Hanamel, and I weighed out the silver to him, seventeen shekels of silver. I recorded it on a scroll, sealed it, called in witnesses, and weighed out the silver on the scales. I took the purchase agreement, the sealed copy with its terms and conditions, and the open copy, and gave the purchase agreement to Baruch, son of Neriah, son of Mahasiah. I did this in the sight of my cousin, Hanamel, the witnesses who had signed the purchase agreement, and all the Judeans sitting in the guard's courtyard. I charged Baruch in their sight, this is what the Lord of Armies, the God of Israel, says. Take these scrolls, this purchase agreement with the sealed copy and the open copy, and put them in an earthen storage jar so they will last a long time. For this is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel, says. Houses, fields, and vineyards will again be bought in this land. After I had given the purchase agreement to Baruch, son of Neriah, I prayed to the Lord, O Lord God, you yourself made the heavens and the earth by your great power and with your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. You show faithful love to thousands, but lay the father's iniquity on their son's laps after them. Great and mighty God, whose name is the Lord of armies, the one great in counsel and powerful in action. Your eyes are on all the ways of the children of men in order to reward each person according to his ways and as the result of his actions. You perform signs and wonders in the land of Egypt and still do today, both in Israel and among all mankind. You made a name for yourself, as is the case today. You brought your people Israel out of Egypt with signs and wonders, with a strong hand and an outstretched arm, and with great terror. You gave them this land. You swore to give to their ancestors a land flowing with milk and honey. They entered and possessed it, but they did not obey you or live according to your instructions. They failed to perform all you commanded them to do, and so you have brought all this disaster on them. Look, siege ramps have come against the city to capture it, and the city as a result of the sword, famine, and plague has been handed over to the Chaldeans who are fighting against it. What you have spoken has happened. Look, you can see it. Yet you, Lord God, have said to me, purchase the field and call in witnesses, even though the city has been handed over to the Chaldeans. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Look, I am the Lord, the God over every creature. Is anything too difficult to me? Therefore, this is what the Lord says. I am about to hand this city over to the Chaldeans, to Babylon's king Nebuchadnezzar, and he will capture it. The Chaldeans who are fighting against this city will come and set the city on fire. 
They will burn it, including the houses where incense has been burned to Baal on their rooftops and where drink offerings have been poured out to other gods to anger me. From their youth, the Israelites and Judeans have done nothing but what is evil in my sight. They've done nothing but anger me by the work of their hands. This is the Lord's declaration. For this city has caused my wrath and fury from the day it was built until now. I will therefore remove it from my presence because of all the evil the Israelites and Judeans have done to anger me. They, their kings, their officials, their priests, and their prophets, the men of Judah and the residents of Jerusalem, they have turned their backs to me and not their faces. Though I taught them... Time and time again, they do not listen and receive discipline. They have placed their abhorrent things in the house that bears my name and have defiled it. They have built the high places of Baal in the Ben-Hanam Valley to sacrifice their sons and daughters in the fire to Molech, something I had not commanded them. I had never even entertained the thought that they would do this detestable act, causing Judah to sin. Now, therefore, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says to this city about what you said. It has been handed over to Babylon's king through sword, famine, and plague. I will certainly gather them from all the lands where I banished them in my anger, fury, and intense wrath, and I will return to them to this place and make them live in safety. They will be my people, and I will be their God. I will give them integrity of heart and action so that they will fear me always for their good and for the good of their descendants after them. I will make a permanent covenant with them. I will never turn away from doing good to them, and I will put fear of me in their hearts so they will never again turn away from me. I will take delight in them to do what is good for them, and with all my heart and mind I will faithfully plant them in this land. For this is what the Lord says, Just as I have brought all this terrible disaster on these people, so am I about to bring on them all the good I am promising them. Fields will be brought in this land about which you are saying, It's a desolation without people or animals. It has been handed over to the Chaldeans. Fields will be purchased. The transaction written on a scroll and sealed and witnesses will be called on in the land of Benjamin, in the areas surrounding Jerusalem and in Judah's cities, the cities of the hill country, the cities of the Judean foothills and the cities of the Negev, because I will restore their fortunes. This is the Lord's declaration. Acts chapter 22 verse 1, Paul is speaking. Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense before you. When they heard that he was addressing them in Aramaic, they became even quieter. He continued, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strictness of our ancestral law. I was zealous for God, just as all of you are today. I persecuted this way to the death, arresting and putting both men and women in jail, as both the high priest and the whole council of elders can testify about me. After I received letters from them to the brothers, I traveled to Damascus to arrest those who were there and bring them to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was traveling and approaching Damascus about noon, an intense light from heaven suddenly flashed around me and I fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, the one you are persecuting. Now those who are with me saw the light, but they did not hear the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What should I do, Lord? And the Lord told me, get up and go into Damascus, and there you will be told everything that you have been assigned to do. Since I couldn't see because of the brightness of the light, I was led by hand by those who were with me and went into Damascus. Someone named Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, who had a good reputation with all the Jews living there, 
came and stood by me and said, Brother Saul, regain your sight. And so in that very hour, I looked up and saw him, and he said, The God of our ancestors has appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear the words from his mouth, since you will be a witness for him to all people of what you have seen and heard. And now, why are you delaying? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. After I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him telling me, Hurry and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. But I said, Lord, they know that in synagogue after synagogue, I had those who believed in you imprisoned and beaten. And when the blood of your witness Stephen was being shed, I stood there giving approval and guarding the clothes of those who killed me. And he said to me, Go, because I will send you far away to the Gentiles. They listened to him up to this point. Then they raised their voices, shouting, Wipe this man off the face of the earth. He should not be allowed to live. As they were yelling and flinging aside their garments and throwing dust into the air, the commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks, directing that he be interrogated with the scourge to discover the reason they were shouting against him like this. As they stretched him out for the lash, Paul said to the centurion standing by, Is it legal for you to scourge a man who is a Roman citizen and is an uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went and reported to the commander, saying, What are you going to do, for this man is a Roman citizen? The commander came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Yes, he said. The commander replied, I bought this citizenship with a large amount of money, but I was born a citizen, Paul said. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. The commander, too, was alarmed when he realized Paul was a Roman citizen and he had bound him. The next day, since he wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews, he released him and instructed the chief priests and all the Sanhedrin to convene. He brought Paul down and placed him before them. Amen. Well, friends, may the Lord shine his light on you and look on you with favor and grace. May he cover you in his goodness and kindness, and may he carry us all through these most difficult and dark times. Good day to you, and Godspeed.